2: I'm Patrick Ruby, and on today's show, we have brains, space, and tattoos. But first up, here's the news. A new comet has hit our skies, and it's a first-time visitor to the inner solar system. The comet is called Lulin, and it will pass within 61 million kilometres of Earth on Tuesday the 24th of February. This distance is 41% of the distance from the Earth to the Sun. The comet was first discovered in 2007 by a Chinese astronomy student called Ji Ye, and it was discovered at the Lulin Observatory in Taiwan, hence the name. It will appear as a green light in our skies because the sun illuminates two of the gases that it's made of. These are cyanogen and diatomic carbon. Researchers have also found that it contains methane and carbon monoxide after infrared telescopic examination at the John Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory in the US. The comet probably originated from the Oort cloud a comet reservoir thousands of times farther from the Sun than the Earth is. It will be visible to the naked eye in places where the night sky isn't too bright, and should be easily spotted with a telescope. However, it might not have a tail which is characteristic of what we think of with comets. Scientists believe that the comet could have been bombarded by cosmic rays throughout its existence. These would leave a thick crust of organic matter on its surface, preventing the escape of ice and other frozen compounds, which are what we see as the tail in a comet. So perhaps no tail for this one. Just a dot. Just a dot. Just a glowing green, I suppose it's cyan coloured. So, so it's going nice to be green one? though? Well, it's, I've seen the pictures of it and it is green from what they've seen so far. And it's these um, compounds, cyanogen and diatomic carbon. I've never heard of diatomic carbon. I think I'm C2. C- oh. oh, yes, I have heard of diatomic carbon. I didn't know that it gave off a colour like that.
1: Look for something green.
2: Look for something green in the sky if you don't have too many lights.
1: Tuesday night.
2: Tuesday night. Some brain news. Now... We've probably all heard of a disease called meningitis. It typically infects children and young adults, teenagers, and bacterial meningitis, which is the disease when it's caused by a bacterium, causes inflammation of the tissues surrounding the brain and the nervous system. Bacterial meningitis can be really bad and can cause 5% of the people who are infected to die. What they've found is there's three strains of meningitis, A, B and C, and they've developed fairly effective vaccines for strains A and C. However, in doing so, strain B has become the biggest or the most likely strain to cause serious infections, and it's found in about 90% of current infections in the UK. They've recently discovered the way in which the bacterial form of meningitis which is caused by a strain of bacteria called Neisseria meningititis, they've recently found how that works. They believe it mimics human cells by creating a protein which stops it being attacked by our immune system. We have a segment of our immune system called the complement cascade which is part of our innate immune system. It doesn't involve antibodies and it doesn't involve um, cells which respond to specific infections. It's there basically to mop up anything which is recognized as foreign. And the complement cascade typically recognizes bacteria which has been targeted or viruses which have been targeted um, and immobilized in some way um, and then mops it up. But our cells naturally produce a factor, which is called factor H, which stops the complement system from accidentally recognising them and destroying them or seeing them as foreign cells. And what we found out is strain B of the Neisseria meningititis um, bacterium produces factor H as well, so that your immune system, the complement system, passes it by and thinks of it as being part of your body, part of your natural cells. And in that way, it's able to continue its infection without being spotted and attacked by your immune system. And researchers in the UK are working on a way of developing a vaccine that will recognize the bacterial, um, the outside of the bacterium, which is a sugar coated. Um, Called the glycocalyx. It's a sugar coated phospholipid layer that surrounds the bacterium. Um, They're working out ways of targeting that so that you're better able to attack um, meningitis. And this recent discovery that it's producing factor H might be beneficial in producing new targeted therapies.
1: The meningitis bacteria Mm -hmm. produces the same factor H chemical. our body cells shows, like like showing the same uniform to say we're on the same side, so they don't get killed. Yeah. Right.
2: So it's hiding, basically, pretending to be one of us.
1: So how does that help them get around it?
2: The researchers at Oxford and Imperial College, which have been doing a collaboration on this, believe that if they can modify the bacterial protein, which um, binds the factor H, and displays it so that it doesn't get attacked by the complement system. If they can modify it, it won't be able to bind it as well, or at all, and that way the complement system would be able to recognise it and um, attack it and destroy it. Also, some more brain news. Beta blockers, which are medications which are commonly used for treating heart condition, particularly slowing the heart down, can actually be used to modify fearful memories and make them less debilitating for people who suffer from disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder. Now this was a study done by a clinical psychologist Meryl Kint of the University of Amsterdam and colleagues and it was reported in February 15th in Nature Neuroscience. And what they did was they took a group of people and exposed them to pictures of spiders at the same time as giving them a small electric shock. So it's like a Pavlovian condition response that they're setting up. They associate shock with a picture of a spider and they develop, develop a fear reaction to it. And once this has been done, um, They split the group of people into two groups. One is given a placebo and one is given a beta blocker called propanolol. And they then get the people to recall their memories of the negative stimulus. And they find that with the propanolol, it's modified so that it's not seen as scary as it was before. This was something that um, came up initially, caught my attention on an SBS program a few days ago where um, a lady in Canada, I think it was, in Montreal was being treated for post-traumatic stress disorder having been raped about nine years before she'd had her treatment and having um, developed the disorder because of the intensely um, uncomfortable and hideous experience that she'd had Um, and she was put on this trial where she was given propanolol and then asked to recall um, her experience and she found that with subsequent tests with propanolol the memories were less vivid and less upsetting for her. Now scientists are postulating as to the mechanism of this because it contradicts current theories of how memory works. Current theories, or I suppose you should, you should say accepted mainstream theories of memory, are discrete neural networks that exist and remain intact from the time the memory is formed up until the time you die or the time you lose that memory. And this is sort of indicating that there's a certain amount of what's called plasticity with memories, which means changeability. So once you've had a memory, if you recall it, you rewrite it in a certain way. And if something's interfering with you, like a drug like propranolol, when you're recalling the memory, you rewrite it in a way where it's modified. And this means with bad memories that you modify them so that they're not as bad. They don't evoke as much of an emotional response.
3: It's also true for happy memories too, like I said, Yeah. So it happy is. memories are also getting toned down through this drug.
2: Yeah. Any um any particular memory which evokes an emotional response as well as just a memory seems to have that response toned down with the use of this drug. It's really quite interesting to see how it works because the drug works via a receptor called a beta adrenergic receptor um, which like we said before you have on your heart and it's involved in something called the sympathetic nervous system which speeds up your heart Um, it's also found in blood vessels in your muscles and if these receptors are activated it actually dilates the blood vessels in your muscles so you get more blood to your muscles when you're going for a jog or when you're doing some sport or using your legs or using your arms
1: so if you're excited this signal goes out and speeds up your heart and gets the blood going yep. and also tells your memory that you're excited.
2: All we know is that when it's given the memories are less vivid, the emotional response the that blocked. you have when it, yeah, When the, when the um, particular receptor is blocked by propranolol um, however it's also possible that it may be working by a completely different type of receptor that we're unsure of Something more indirect. Yeah. Next story, Tattoos, by Ian Wolfe.
1: This story was sent in by Marty from South Lyons, Minneapolis. Tattoo your way to health. Draper Laboratories in Massachusetts have invented a nanotech ink that changes colour to show whether your blood sugar is getting too high or too low. The tattoos can be as small as a few millimetres across and they don't require the deep needles of ordinary tattoos. The researchers first developed an ink that changed colour according to sodium levels in the blood to monitor the health of your heart and also the hydration of athletes. Too much sodium could indicate not enough fluids or a danger to your heart. The tattoo dye fluoresces in infrared, so athletes and heart patients would have to carry an infrared sensor that measures how bright the tattoo ink has become. Monitoring glucose was a bigger challenge because the sugar molecule is made of 24 different atoms instead of just the one sodium atom. The nano-ink particles are flexible spheres about 120 nanometers across where a nanometer is 10 to the minus 9 meters. The sphere has the glucose-detecting molecule, a color-changing dye, and a fake glucose-like molecule. These three parts float around on the inside of the sphere. When the glucose-detecting molecule comes near the surface, if it can grab some glucose, then it changes to yellow. If it can't grab glucose, it latches hold of its own glucose-like molecule and turns purple. So if the tattoo is orange, then you have a healthy amount of glucose in your blood, neither too little nor too much. Apart from needing only one needle in your lifetime instead of several needles every day to work out how your blood sugar is going, the tattoo gives you a new update every few seconds of what's happening in the skin and every 20 minutes of what's happening deep inside your veins. If you're diabetic and need to manually keep your blood sugar inside the safe limits, then this is much safer and more precise. If you fall into a diabetic coma, the tattoo would tell medical staff whether to give you sugar or insulin. The sodium-detecting tattoos have been very successful in mice, but humans won't be wearing active tattoos for another two years. In the near future, everybody may get small indicator tattoos along with their vaccination needles.
2: Is it as painful as a normal tattoo?
1: It's probably not as painful because it's not as deep.
2: and It's just a
3: small area. In fact, we can tattoo people on the head and we can see what mood they're in.
1: But ultimately, they can start detecting almost any solar molecule. So we may end up with little tiny tattoo dots for all sorts of things.
3: You'll put your hand into a vending machine. Like vending machines all around the country where you walk up, scan your barcode, put your hand in the vending machine and get the colours diagnosed.
1: Put your hand in, get injected.
3: Well, if, they can't, no, if it can't actually um, diagnose the colours, it then takes a blood sample. But it doesn't tell you. It, it just it distracts you with a bad odour or smell or something. Oh, that's terrible. Or a beta blocker. A beta, actually, a beta <laughs> blocker. Sprays a beta blocker into your face. You don't remember. Exactly. You walk like what happened there?
1: Hi, I'm Dave the Happy Singer, and you're listening to Diffusion Science Radio.
2: Mark West chatted with Bianca NoGrady.
4: Now you may think that with the Hubble telescope out there, the Huygens probe, the Mars rovers, even the Voyager expeditions from years ago, that we know quite a lot about our solar system. But it turns out that there is much that we don't know. I recently spoke to Bianca NoGrady from New Scientist about an article that was published in the January 31, 2009 issue of New Scientist that outlined the six things that we don't yet know about our solar system. The number one thing here that we don't know about the solar system was how the solar system was formed, how it was built. Now, I thought we knew this, but but clearly we don't.
5: Well, we understand the principles, but there are still a few grey areas. I mean, The evidence suggests it all began about 4.6 billion years ago and and, you know we've got this hydrogen and helium gas with a little bit of solid dust and for some reason it starts to condense and form molecules and then under its own growing weight this this molecular cloud starts to collapse in on itself and you get a lot of heat and a lot of energy and voila you have the sun. Um, Now the sun up about or swallowed up i should say about 99.8 percent of the debris cloud that it formed in but the remainder became this thin disk of dust around its middle so kind of like a tutu <laughs> uh, which i just love that image the sun yeah, with a, a tutu on a good, so um, as the dust grains in this disk collide they start to form bigger bits and i mean at this stage on the end sort of closer into the sun it's still incredibly hot so the only things that could survive are things with very high melting points uh, in terms of things that are able to remain solid. And so that's where we get the four small inner rocky planets, which is Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Um, so these are all the things we do know. You know, far, Further out, when you get away from that heat, you get um, it gets colder. You've got methane and water that are also present as solids. So there you've got developing plants can actually grow bigger. They can start pulling in gas molecules. And that's how we get the gas giants. But big mystery is we're not entirely sure how these kind of these little meter-sized boulders start to coalesce into planetary-sized bodies. Mm. Um, you know I mean one of the theories is in terms of how the sun kind of came to starts to, to pull together is that there might have been a shock wave from a nearby supernova that actually forced some of the material together and then it set off this chain reaction but you know how we go from meter-sized boulders into these bodies that are tens of kilometers across Is a bit of a mystery because in theory i mean there's incredibly high gas pressures around them it's very turbulent they should have just been sucked into the sun Mm. um but they obviously weren't because we're here and we're talking so you know one of the theories is that maybe they're you know in all of this turbulent gas there might have been lower pressure areas like little vortices that might have actually protected these bodies and protected these boulders long enough for them to actually be able to coalesce into big enough bodies um, and then actually, you know, I guess, remain outside the sun's reach or at least gain enough force to be able to not get sucked into the sun. So, I mean, that's one of the mysteries. But the other, the other mystery is that um, a number of other solar systems that have been discovered have what they call hot Jupiters. So these are planets mm. that are about the same size as Jupiter, but they're orbiting around their stars um, at the same sort of distance that Earth orbits around the sun. So it makes us wonder well why do we not have these bigger planets closer in? You know, it could have been that in these other solar systems these big planets might have been bounced in closer to the sun, but for some reason that hasn't happened in our solar system and that's a good thing because that probably would have knocked, you know, Earth and all the other smaller planets completely out of the out of the loop. So even though we, we know the principles, there's still a few mysteries in there that we haven't quite solved.
4: Yeah, it seems quite counterintuitive that the big lumps of rock could bounce together and and stick together, doesn't it? But I guess all this happened over a very long period of time.
5: And you've got, yeah, and you've got an enormous amount of heat as well. And, I mean, it, it does seem a bit strange. You know, you kind of just have this image of these rocks being banged together and you think, well, that's not going to work. Yeah. But um, obviously the conditions in which all of this happened were, were quite extreme. You know, we just don't experience those on Earth. Well, at least, I guess, probably in the hearts of volcanoes and at the Earth's core. But we don't experience them. So it's difficult to imagine. But once you start to get enough material, then the force of gravity takes over and, and just sucks it in. It's kind of a, I guess, a feedback Cycle and, and they just get bigger and bigger and bigger.
4: And the second unknown that uh, New Scientist recently published was why are the Sun and the Moon the same size in the sky? Now, I always thought this was just an interesting coincidence and it kind of produced pretty diamond ring, ring effects at certain times of the year, but is there more to it than that?
5: Well, in, in, there is and there isn't. It, it is in fact a striking coincidence. The Sun is about 400 times as wide as the Moon, but it's also about 400 times further away. So it is just, I guess, the luck of the draw that the two actually look very much the same size in the sky and and so we are lucky enough to get some quite amazing eclipses. Um, But what is unusual is that we are lucky to have a moon of this size. It's actually quite rare. Um, And, for example, traditionally, when you look at some of the other moons that are present in our solar system, they, they, they form in two kind of traditional, well, two conventional ways. One is that you've got a lot of material just hanging around a large planet's gravitational field and that kind of gradually some of that pulls together to form a moon or it might be a small body that passes a large planet and gets captured by its gravitational field but our moon is actually too large for either of these theories to apply and so oh really yeah it is it's, it's a bit un, it's unique so what they think happened was that uh, at some stage in um probably about 100 million years after the solar system first formed, that a Mars-sized object actually smashed into Earth, which would have been one heck of a bang, Mm. completely remodeled our planet, and in the process a huge amount of debris would have been thrown out, and that eventually congealed into what we know and love as the Moon. Um, So it's unique in that respect, but also we're very lucky because our Earth actually spins on its own axis, and it has a little bit of a wobble. Um, And this is partly because there are, you know, pull on it from bodies such as the sun and other things. But the moon actually damps down that wobble and it actually prevents some of the rotational instability that would otherwise have actually led to quite significant and quite dramatic changes in the Earth's climatic zones over time. So it's made the Earth... More gravitationally stable, and therefore more climat- climatically stable. So we have the moon. We have a lot to thank the moon for.
4: So it's got a bit of an evolutionary purpose as well, doesn't it?
5: Well, I guess yeah. You, it certainly could be. You could speculate that if our moon wasn't as big as it is, or if we didn't have one, that you know life may not have evolved on Earth as, as well as it has, or may not have evolved at all. Who knows? It, it, there's certainly the influence of the, the moon on, the, on our planet is quite profound, and. It's difficult to know what life would be like, or what the planet would be like without it.
4: And it mops up asteroids as well, doesn't it? Is that right?
5: I'm, I'm not actually sure. It might do. I mean, oh. <laughs> I like to think it does. Yeah. Uh, given that you know, if they hit the moon, they're not going to hit us. But yeah. sounds um, good. But no, I'm not sure. It could, it could actually certainly send some of them on a you know away from a collision course. But by the same token, it might actually send some on a collision course that might not otherwise have been on a collision course with Earth.
4: That's true. I'll look that one up. I must be. <laughs> I'm misremembering my first year astronomy. I think.
5: Yes, reaching back.
4: (laughs) It's getting too long ago now, unfortunately.
5: The third one
4: was, is there a planet X? And again, this is another one that I didn't know there was still debate over. I know there's debate over if Pluto is still a planet, uh, but I didn't know that they were still looking for a planet X.
5: Well, I think Pluto, unfortunately, Pluto's fate has been sealed. It has been decided that, no, it doesn't qualify as a planet. But there is a theory, and, and as yet it hasn't been disproved, that there is, in fact... An unsighted large planet that could be as large as Mars or even Earth—that's a lot further out in our solar system—and um, this hasn't been disproven; hasn't been proven either. But uh, the reason that the, this theory exists is that there, there's a, a, an area called the, the Kuiper Belt. I could be pronouncing this wrong. Kuiper or?
4: Kuper. Oh, I, I looked it up on Wikipedia. It rhymes with Viper. It's Kuiper. Kuiper
5: Belt. Yes. Lego. Dutch. Today. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is a, a kind of a belt of icy bits of debris, and, and it exists basically from Neptune's orbit at about 30 astronomical units from the Sun out to about 50 astronomical units from the Sun. So an astronomical unit is the distance between Earth and the Sun. And some of the objects in the Kuiper Belt have really odd orbits so for example they've got really um, elongated orbits around the sun or they've got these incredibly steep orbits that are almost at right angles to the orbits of all the other major planets which doesn't quite make sense and one theory that might explain this is that it could be in fact um, interference from a massive object that's somewhere in there we haven't seen that's completely messing with these orbits.
2: That was Mark West with three of the six biggest unknowns of the solar system. Stay tuned for part two when we ask the question, are we alone? And that's all from us for this week of Diffusion, broadcasting from our new studios at UTS. And they're almost working. If you want to contact us, if you have any feedback, if you want to get your voice on radio, your opinions across on any of our stories, then send an email to Diffusion at 2SER.com That's Diffusion at 2SER.com Or, you can visit our website, www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com Contributing to the program this week were Drew Shobrook, Ian Wolfe and Mark West. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Ian Wolfe at the new UTS Studios at Sydney. I'm Patrick Ruby. Join us inside your audio device of choice next week for more science wonderings on Diffusion Science Radio.
1: And to take us out, he is John Otway with Bunsen Burner. There's a rare
0: isotope of hydrogen that gets us into heavy water. It's a molecular structure of your DNA. I'm an alchemist baby I can turn heavy metal into gold I can make an unstable compound Oh, mercury explode I can make you glow I can make you phosphoresce. I can burst your bubble I can make you FOS. Science tells us love's a chemical reaction in the brain So let me be your bunsen burner, let me be your naked flame Let me be your bunsen burner Let me be your naked flame Let me be your bunsen burner Let me be your naked flame You're gonna turn bright red When I do my litmus test on you I said it was. I said it is. And what acid is true. Check out what's in the test tube, baby. Wow, wow. You're my little big wow, wow. You're my favourite piece of apparatus. Wow, wow. In my chemistry set. Wow, wow. Science tells us love's a chemical reaction in the brain. So let me be your Bunsen burner. Let me be your naked flame. Burn, baby, burn. let me be your monster baby burn. let me be your naked flame. let me be your monster That I can date. You're the element that makes me passionate. There's a chemistry experiment I wanna try in my brain. So I come close to the Bunsen burner. Feel the heat of the naked flame. Sounds tells us love's a chemical reaction in the brain. So let me be your Bunsen burner, let me be your naked flame. Burn, baby, burn. let me be your Bunsen burner. Let me be your naked flame. Burn, baby, burn. Burn, baby, burn. Your burn, baby burn. I know what I'm doing, I am a chemist! Burn, baby burn. Now this is quite interesting! Burn, baby Have you tried covalent bonding? Burn, baby Well, try right, right, putting
5: these two together!